0: Hey, listeners, today's episode deals with the topic of sexual assault. We wanted to notify our listeners who may experience trauma related to those topics ahead of the episode and to let you know that resources are listed on our website. Thanks for listening. In this True Crime Law and Order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Well, well, hi. <laughs> um, well, I have a couple of random things, but nothing super exciting in the world of Santa Barbara. Mm-hmm. I've just finished what I think is like my fourth fully in-person week back at work. Mm-hmm. Um, And that's been a lot.
1: <laughs> I imagine.
0: But yeah, it's going okay. How about you? What's new with you?
1: Oh, you know, we're just doing the whole... Setting up our life over here thing still, which I feel like we'll be doing probably for our whole first year. <laughs> mm-hmm, yeah. But, yeah, you know, we're just enjoying the changing of the leaves, which is my favorite time of year. Uh-huh. And lots of rain, which I like, oh. but I hate driving in. Fair. Um, and, yeah, just enjoying the fall weather thing. As we went to our first family get-together Uh uh-huh uh yesterday actually which was really nice good first time i got to bring davy to a family event family and friends hmm. event it was fun though it was nice that's fun yeah awesome i this
0: is completely tangent but going back to the weather talking about the weather because i know that's everyone's favorite thing to listen to (laughs) we had the most amazing like thunder and lightning storm here the other day like the sky was like constantly flashing with lightning and you could see like uh, bolts coming down it was pretty incredible i saw photos
1: that folks over there were posting and yeah not only were they beautiful the sky afterwards was like gorgeous yeah yeah it was like a it was like what dreams may come <laughs>
0: <laughs> well i have a couple of random things to discuss with you are um, you it looks like you do too are you ready i'm ready okay Item number one, this is a a big throwback. A long time ago, you mentioned Nick Cannon's Wild in (laughs) and out I think literally maybe in like episode two or three when we talked about like the subway vigilante. Yes. Okay, so this is like almost a year later throwback. But when Miles and I were on vacation, we stayed at this Airbnb. And no matter what time of day, when you turned on the TV, it was always Playing Nick Cannon's Wild and what? Out. And so I just got to like see minutes, moments of it as we like switched to whatever we were watching. But I just thought it was so, it was like it was on 24 hours a day. It was always Nick Cannon.
1: I'm so sorry. No offense. <laughs> Thank you. I- <laughs>
0: I'm, I was not a fan of
1: the show, so no. I was like, oh,
0: God, this is terrible. I don't understand the premise, but it wasn't entertaining to me.
1: It felt like a opportunity for up-and-coming stand-ups and like, D-list celebrities to try to show the world that they're funny. Yeah. But I was not ever... It had the, the opposite effect on me. <laughs> yes. It, it, when someone I liked was on it, I was like, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the other, like, piece of media that I wanted to mention is Midnight Mass, which, have you watched it? Okay, we are on, there's seven episodes, I believe, and we have finished the first five.
0: Okay, I'm not gonna say anything then, because I want to talk about it once you've seen it. So let's talk about it next week, but I have some very strong feelings.
1: I'll just say that. Me too, already. And I'm just, if we didn't have somewhere to go yesterday, we would have finished it because we were watching okay. it all the way up until we left. <laughs> Great.
0: Yeah. Because it's the same person as Bly Manor and Haunting at Hill House. So, yeah, you know,
1: which I've enjoyed both of those. See, Bly Manor, we, so Haunting at Hill House that we were obsessed with, like yeah. obsessed. We wanted to see every hidden person in the background. <laughs> right, 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 right. Bly Manor, we watched the first two episodes when it very first came out and it just didn't catch us the same way. <laughs> So Ugh. we do want to watch it, but it for us. Well, I'll say for me, I was like, "Oh, okay, all right, maybe it picks up." And I ha- I yes. have heard it does, so yes. I'm excited to go back and finish that. And then yeah. this one, I was hoping it was in the same universe because it's um a lot of the same act- some of the same actors. Yeah, the the sheriff guy mm-hmm. and and, uh, and the girl. Yeah, mm-hmm. or a couple of the women actually in it, but it's not in the same series. So I'm hoping there's more i I don't know i guess it depends on how the how it ends but i think he's kind of doing a sort of ryan murphy thing with
0: american horror story where he's just working with actors that he likes working with and kind of putting them in different scenarios which is fine I oh think that's yeah. fine
1: i'm i have no complaints so far all right well I, we'll discuss next week yeah <laughs> i had a few recommendations Great. i'm only going to do like a few of them um okay First thing I want to say is I finally finished the second season of True Detective. Hmm. Okay. I, I heard that one was terrible. I was, like, very excited by the cast. Uh-huh. And then Vince Vaughn showed up. Yeah. And I'm sorry. I know he's, like, a very well-liked actor, I guess. I just have never been a fan of Vince Vaughn.
0: Oh, I never have been. I, don't, I can't think of a single thing I've liked him in.
1: I feel like he only plays Vince Vaughn. Yeah. Like, he's not actually acting. He's just being himself. himself. Yeah. yeah. And I, um, I wanted to like it so bad and be like, oh, maybe this will change my mind on Vince Vaughn. Nope. <sighs> if they had cut him out of it and his whole aspect of the show, I think the season had a chance. <laughs> <laughs> and it was interesting enough to finish, but I don't know. I'm hoping season three will, will pull me back in. Great. Hot take. Um and then (laughs) take uh... (laughs) on a show from like ten years ago. (laughs) And then I watched a documentary. I watched a few, but I'll only talk about one this week. It is called The Way Down. Mm -hmm. It's on HBO Max. Okay, and it is about. Have you heard of it? No. Uh, You You got to watch it. It is The Way Down. Yeah. Okay. And it's about Gwen Shamblin uh who was the leader of Remnant Fellowship Church? Okay, which became big after she was the like leader of this national phenomenon of what she called way down workshops. And okay. in this term it was spelled W E I G H. No. Oh my oh oh, okay. Yeah, and she was basically having people lose weight for God? I think did karen and georgia cover this on my favorite murder one time they may have i'm not i don't remember they may have remnant fellowship rung a bell to me before i watched it Um, and gwen shamblin is quite a character she's very like think tammy faye baker vibes okay um it is wild i think it's a three-parter it is really a wild tale it goes all over the place and i remember her being on tv in like the 90s. I remember her face and I remember this trend of um you can lose weight by her basic idea, which is not a new idea, was the <laughs> idea of like eating till you're satisfied rather rather than being full. But, but her okay. tactics were when you were satisfied to curb your hunger, pray. Oh, all right. I mean, it was I... a huge thing Um <laughs> and I, I highly recommend it. It is a wild ride. Okay, great. I will check that out. And the other ones I'll, I'll save for another time, but we're pretty much down the list. The I know, list we finally we whittled it down. I'm very proud of us. <laughs> I am too. <laughs> All right, well, I'm ready when you are, if you're ready. I'm ready. Whew. Okay, so, did you watch this episode? I did. Whew. Okay. <sighs> the title of this episode, which is episode six, season three, is Helpless, which is how I felt watching the episode.
0: Yeah, I felt like I was being held hostage oh, watching it. Oh my gosh. Get ready. Yeah, it's not a great one. It's, a,
1: it's rough. Yeah. All right, well, the episode begins with our resident psychologist, Dr. Olivet. Mm-hmm. And she is in what is appears to be an OBGYN OBGYN's office. Mm -hmm. Um, She looks uncomfortable a little bit, and things get only worse when the actual examination begins, and the male gynecologist or doctor starts asking her about her perfume Mm -hmm. while he's presumably performing the exam, which is clearly making her uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, I feel like, I don't know, I I feel very conflicted about what they chose to show in this episode, because... I didn't, I didn't think it was necessary for the storyline, and it just felt like gratuitous assault footage.
1: I Yeah, oh my god. And we'll get to my thoughts on that, too. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so he's performing the exam. It's clearly making her uncomfortable. And he tells her, just relax. Don't be so tense. Um, he asks her, how is it feeling? And she says, fine. And then it becomes clear he's no longer performing any type of exam. He's assaulting her. So she tells him to stop, and he does not.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: then she recoils, and she sits up, and she shouts to him, like, stop, I told you to stop. And he barely reacts, no reaction on his face whatsoever. And he tells her, uh, you know what, you need to go get a cancer screening. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. and, she's, and she's also like, what the fuck? So in the next scene, Dr. Olivet is talking to Logan and Saretta in the room where they usually question uh, like, perpetrators? The interrogation room? Yeah. Which is a yeah. little odd, but I'm going to choose to think it was for privacy's sake. Yeah, I would assume. a two-way mirror. But hey, so they're talking to her in there, and Logan has the audacity to question whether Dr. Olivet was aware, and how could she know what, what, if something really was happening? Like, are you really sure? Right. And then Soretta, who normally is the voice of reason in those types of situations, he says, what did he actually do? isn't that his yeah. job you're right uh, and she is way too calm to them like i would have just r- ripped into them yes she tears up and she calmly tells them that this was not an exam and it made her feel dirty and yeah. i'm already disgusted with where we're going yep so the opening credits begin and i needed a mood booster <laughs> so I went to my room and I stepped through the looking glass into Wonderland. <laughs> <laughs> I hung out with the March Hare, I had some tea. And by the time I traveled back, the high-pitched siren was going off with those 80s keyboard vibes. So I bum, knew... Bum, 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 bum. <laughs> <laughs> and we're back. And they like seem to believe her now a little bit. Yeah. But yeah. Kragan isn't super willing to do any sort of investigation because he figures at best, what are we going to get a $500 fine for the guy? Right. Just do it anyway. How about that? How about we don't worry about about whether he's going to be fined? Just how about you investigate anyway? Right. So they insist and Cragen allows it and says, you know, do it by the books. Um, Wouldn't that be what they should always do? Shouldn't you usually or like always? Do we need to even say that? But I think it's ironic that the person who does not want to investigate this sexual assault will go on to be the sergeant of SVU for, like, a decade after this. Yeah, but honestly. Maybe this was a precursor to that. So Logan and Serena go to the medical board, and there's another beast working there, and he basically says, oh, complaints like these are just get-rich-quick schemes, and they basically have to, like, beg him to get any kind of information. Mm -hmm. So he goes to this, like... Computer that might as well be made of a cardboard box because it's another one of those very unrealistic systems where he does the whole like cat on the keyboard thing with his hands and then magically (laughs) things pop up. Yep. Um, He looks up this doctor whose name is Dr. Merritt, which is, I guess, supposed to be ironic. I guess. And he appears to be a real big shot of a doctor. He works at a ton of facilities and hospitals. And so they decide to see how he was at one of the hospitals because most of the hospitals he was at he had a 5-year contract so there's one where he got he left after 3 and they're like maybe something happened so right they go down to the hospital and they talk to like some kind of boss over there it's unclear and he basically says oh no he left upon you know it was mutually agreed upon there was nothing shady nothing suspicious mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> which in itself is suspicious yeah and they're talking to him in like a parking lot as he's like packing up his car The things that they have these people do while they're talking to police officers, (laughs) like they are... The busy work they have them do just continues throughout the episode. But um, as the detectives leave, they suppose that, you know, the doctors are just covering for one another. That's probably what's going on. And what leads them to that conclusion? They suppose that it's just like what they do for each other, they say. Well, isn't that delightful? Right. Isn't that delightful? Woo! We're do you see where we're going folks yeah (laughs) so they go to find out his patient list and they find a few patients who used to see dr Merritt regularly but suddenly stopped and they decide to follow up with them they pick which patient to go to first based on how close she is to an italian restaurant (laughs) and i think this is the first piece of protocol that's probably against the books that i agree with (laughs) (laughs) because i'm a pig (laughs) um so they see one patient Uh, whose name is Ms. Marks, and she said she was okay with their arrangement. And eventually he, quote, oh my god, his yin got tired of her yang. Yep. Or vice versa. Um, Number one, vomit all over myself, USA. Oh, yeah. Number two, why does every professional woman on this show have to work at an art gallery? I, you know what, that's true. They're either at modeling agencies or art galleries. That's pretty much all we've gotten. Whenever it's like someone of stature, oh, a female woman of stature working, she's yeah. at an art but this, But guess where she works? The art gallery. So they're like, all right, well, this one was a bust. So they follow up with another patient whose name is Diane. And she is apparently sedated after recovering from a near-fatal suicide attempt, according to her mother who is real concerned about it, by the way. She seems real worried. Yeah. And they're like, we'll speak with her anyway. So they're led into a room, and we have a very heavily dramatized scene. Diane, who, by the way, is played by a young Felicity Huffman. Oh, my God. I did not even realize that. Wild! I didn't realize it either until I noticed a different um, guest cast member and looked her up, and I was like, oh, Felicity Huffman.
0: Wow. But yeah, it's totally okay. her.
1: She is smoking a cigarette, staring out into the distance in a robe, looking like she's in, like, a really bad perfume ad. I was thinking more like Girl Interrupted. Oh, yeah. It's like the only chair in the middle of a massive room. (laughs) Yeah, it's very that. They ask her about Dr. Merritt, and she says, it's always hot in his office. Um, Okay. And in so many words, she just confirms their suspicions, but not really and it's, it's like a really poorly written like theater class project. It's, it was yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, terrible. Their third follow-up patient says that her concerns with him were because of, weren't because of a sexual advance, but because he performed a laser surgery on her without anesthesia. Oh, and yeah. she complained about it, and it went nowhere. So they go to check with the guy at the medical board— And it's not clear what he does there either. But he says, we can't be expected to take every complaint seriously, can we? Right. Um, He's like, we've got (laughs) way too many. We've got so many medical complaints, we can't even possibly treat them all realistically. (laughs) Exactly. Troubling on many levels. So many levels. (sighs) So they say that, well, you know, this seems kind of serious. And they're like, well, we did take it seriously, but... You know, some patients can die from anesthesia, so, you know, maybe it's good that she didn't get it. And I thought, (sighs) is that a logical explanation for anything? No. Like, if I went to go get my my appendix out, and they were like, oh, well, we didn't do it with anesthesia because some people die from anesthesia. Right. Would that work? (laughs) No. So, anyway, they go to Robinette, and he somehow looks up if there were any lawsuits against the guy, and he finds one from his then-wife Celia. So they're like, oh, that's really interesting. So they go to visit her, and like I was mentioning earlier, she's doing what they have every woman do when they visit to, like, talk to them. She's <laughs> doing busy work around the house, moving items from one place to another for no apparent reason. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's like when you're, like, trying to listen in on people talking in a room. So you'd, like, oh walk in the room and, like, sort papers through and, like, pick up a stapler <laughs> and move it around. <laughs> yes. And she basically tells them, We were married for six years and it took 10 years of therapy to get over it afterwards. So, yeah, that gives a good insight into who this guy is on a personal level. And she says that while he did abuse her, she considers herself the lucky one because she survived, unlike his second wife. Ooh. Mm-hmm. So, in the next scene, Logan and Soretta enter Kragen's office with crime scene photos of what happened to the late Mrs. Merritt, number two. And it's images of a woman face down in like leather kink wear with a hooded mask on. Mm -hmm. Um, And they said that the Emmy called it an overdose at the time. Uh, And that she was, it was probably based on someone who was trying to die by suicide. And Kragen says that they're on the wrong track because Dr. Olivet never even said he heard her. He just touched her. Just touched her. Right. Whew. The sergeant. So. They're trying to push for this, even though they at first weren't, like, the most willing to understand it either. And I'm just thinking, like, why are they so unwilling to believe a sexual assault assault survivor? I know that it's law and order in general, especially back then. (laughs) But it's their friend and their, like, colleague. And even with them, they're like, "Mm, you know, do we have to? Like, it's a hassle. Yep. So they bring the photos back to the First Lady, Ms. Marks, at the art gallery. And they just show her them in the middle of the art gallery. Like, here's a dead body. They're such a fan of doing that. Like, walking into people's workplaces and showing them photos of dead bodies. I was like, wow. But the woman is completely unfazed. Totally. Even after they tell her it's an actual dead body. Mm -hmm. She's like, oh, hmm, okay. (laughs) And she's like, well, I'm pretty kinky. So, you know, whatever. And... They're like, well, why did you stop seeing Dr. Merritt for real? Right. If, if that's how he is and you are indeed so kinky. And she's like, well, he only gets off when someone's actually scared of him, and I wasn't scared of him. So, you know, basically I realized he was a psychopath and I left. <laughs> and even with all of this, Kragen still doesn't want to do anything about it. And they're talking to him as he's shoving a hot dog down his gullet. <laughs> and he's like, oh, well, not going to do anything about it. So, they go back to speak to Olivet, and they break the news to her that they're not going to proceed with just her word against his. Right. And she's understandably outraged. And in the next scene, we see her slip a recorder into her purse, very, like, 90s, um, like, if Alias was made in the 90s. I was going to say I'm surprised that a recording device was small enough to fit in a purse back then. Oh, my God, right? It was very Murder, She Wrote. She slips the recorder into her purse, and she goes to see Dr. Merritt again, and he has a nurse come in and apply an anesthetic, who she looks kind of uncomfortable, and then from what we gather, he begins to assault her again, and in the next scene, the detectives are at the hospital, and they're surprised to see that their survivor is Dr. Olivet, who has now been given a rape kit this time, and she says, you need to run the kit and lock this guy up. And Logan says to her, what were you thinking? And she says, someone needed to stop him. And since, you know, I was drugged, this is going to make it rape one, isn't it? And she's like, I'm not worried about anyone having my word against his this time because I have a tape, for better or for worse. Yeah, that's her logic. Yeah. In the next scene, the law and order guys meet at the table, and they listen to the disgusting tape, which... Ugh. This is the most gratuitous part I felt like so unnecessary. Atrocious. I hated it. And they played it twice. Yes. And each time they played longer versions of it. Yes. Oh, my God. So Stone worries about them being accused of entrapment. But since she wasn't officially on the job, they decide to order Dr. Merritt to be arrested, which the detectives happily do. And now we're up for the order side of the episode. And we get hmm. our second guest star who i this is the one i recognized right away and you know this person too so the person playing dr Merritt's defense attorney is tova feldsa or Felsha, and she plays rebecca's mom and crazy ex-girlfriend oh my gosh wow i w- i didn't recognize her either i recognized her face a little bit and the second she started speaking i was like is that rebecca bunch's mom <laughs> 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 um, in this episode, however, she's a total beast. And she says, oh, come on. You know, they had a little afternoon delight, basically. So get real. This isn't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. In court, anyway, the doctor who examined Dr. Olivet tells Stone, uh, the doctor that examined Dr. Olivet after the assault tells Stone that based on vaginal bruising and semen on the body and the state of the patient, he concludes that she was definitely raped. But then on cross-examination with Rebecca Bunch's mom, they cast doubt on the situation because there was no fingernail scrapings, which I feel like is not a great defense. No. The tape is then played for a very uncomfortable Jerry and me, um, and you, <laughs> and Dr. Olivet testifies afterwards to everything that happened. And on cross, the defense attorney asks her, who is Dr. Lawrence? And they draw a very dramatic pan on all of it, right up to her face, and she reveals that it's her gynecologist. So then, why is she seeing this other gynecologist? And then she asks her about Diane Perkins, who, which, who's the woman who's Felicity Huffman earlier. And there's an objection from Stone, and the judge calls them into chambers. Like, why are we bringing this up? Where are we going with this? and it turns out she's apparently a patient of both Dr. Merritt and Dr. Olivet. Something that is new information to everybody. Mhm. Because Diane won't waive her doctor-patient privilege, it is inadmissible anyway. But the defense attorney was right about one thing. Dr. Olivet only saw this OBGYN because she wanted to see for herself if what Diane had told her in their private sessions was true. So, what we learn from Dr. Olivet is that she felt responsible for referring Diane to Dr. Merritt in the first place, and she felt compelled to go in on her own and do this like sting operation. Yep. <sighs> so Stone and her argue about it outside in the courtroom steps, but they end up shelving the issue because we're, we're already here. So they return to trial. Dr. Merritt's assistant, that nurse that came in, testifies that. When he was with Dr. Olivet, she definitely wanted merit, and that women fall for their OBGYNs all the time. Um, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's true. Uh, I also don't know how any of this was, was admissible at all. Right. But Dr. Merritt also lies under oath next and says that, you know, nothing happened, and, you know, anything that happened was consensual. And every time Stone says a word, the defense attorney objects. And every time she says a word, Stone objects. So it's less of a trial and more like red light, green light. (laughs) And afterwards, the jury comes back with guilty on rape in the first degree. So, yay. But the judge immediately afterwards disagrees with the jury and chastises them for their findings, saying that they were basing them on emotional feelings and sensational testimony and such. And, um... He throws it away. He he dismisses the whole case. Yeah, he has like the the judgment vacated or something. I was shocked. I wanted to scream, but I knew there were ten minutes left in the episode, so I was like, "Well, this can't be the end." (laughs) So the DA's team meets with Olivet and Schiff, and they decide they're going to try to go after that nurse that lied on the stand, and Mm -hmm. they find out that she was previously brought up on two drug charges. And they bring her in for questioning, and they threaten to take her to trial for rape one because they said she used a sedative instead of an an anesthetic, and they say that they have proof of it. Which I think, how do they now magically have proof of this, but they couldn't bring this up during the trial? Because it was something they tried to say in the trial that they didn't have proof of. Maybe it was, like, blood work that they had on all of it? No, they said that they have a new technique. Maybe, I guess so. But wouldn't they have that ready for trial? If that was something they were going to bring up?
0: I mean, maybe the writers just
1: threw something in here to solve the case. Mm -hmm. So in any event, it's enough to get her to fold on him for the case of Diane. Dr. Olivet then meets with Diane in the next scene. And I was like, oh my God, she's going to put this poor girl through hell now. And Diane confides in her that she tried disassociating basically during the attack, but she can remember pretty specific details and she knows that she was in fact assaulted. And thankfully, Dr. Olivet refuses to have Diane testify in order to not have her be further traumatized, because this girl looks like she's been through it. And Stone decides, you know what, we're going to have him arrested anyway, and we're going to let the press know about it, because if he gets publicly disgraced, maybe we'll have enough for other survivors to be brave enough to come forward, and then we won't Mm -hmm. need to use Diane. And in the next scene, we learn two things. First thing is that Defense Attorney Bunch (laughs) thinks that a silk bathrobe is appropriate Courtware to the da's office <laughs> and b uh 54 survivors have now come forward after the showing on the courtroom stairs right 54 jesus so it looks like he'll likely spend the rest of his life in jail but we don't really get that payoff they just kind of mention it and they look scared <laughs> and then the last scene is with Dr. Olivet and her therapist, and she's sharing about the trauma that she had and how it ha- how it has affected her and how it likely will continue to affect her. And that is the end of the episode. Yeah. Um, that was a rough Boy. episode. I have very, very rough, conflicting feelings about it, but I guess we'll do that when yeah. we read it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well... Are you ready to hear the true crime that inspired this episode? I'm
1: bracing myself.
0: Well, it is not a case. Well, okay, so let me back up. This episode was not inspired by a particular case, but there are similar cases, one of which I will tell you right now. (laughs) Okay. All right, so um, this is the story of George Tyndall, uh, T-Y-N-D-L-D-A-L-L. I'm saying Tyndall. Mm -hmm. That sounds right, right? Yeah. Okay. So George Tyndall was born in Plattsburgh, New York. Do you know where that is? Uh, I'm familiar with the name of it, but I couldn't put it on a map. Okay. Uh, He was born there in 1947. I don't... I wasn't able to find a lot of information about his early life. Like, it's kind of like birth date. He graduated from the State University of New York Plattsburgh and then in 1967 he joined the navy so he took a break in college and joined the navy okay and while he was in the navy he was sent to the defense language institute to study vietnamese which was apparently in high demand at the at the time for like american intelligence during the vietnam war so like having military folks fluent in vietnamese helped our intelligence efforts apparently and so he was kind of like seen as pretty bright and they sent him to learn vietnamese okay um he was stationed in the philippines and while he was there he also learned tagalog so he is multilingual he was honorably discharged from the navy in 1971 and when he returned back to the united states he went to suny plattsburgh again where he graduated summa cum laude Mm, okay in 1980, he began a medical program in the Philippines at the University of the East Ramon Magsaysay Memorial Medical Center. Okay. And then he later attended the Drexel University College of Medicine in Pennsylvania. Oh, and then I'm Drexel? Oh, do you? Yeah. Great. <laughs> I was impressed that went there. <laughs> So upon graduated, graduation from medical school, he was, he got a job working for Kaiser Permanente in Los Angeles in, okay, I know the word obstetrician. I have a hard time saying obstetrics. Obstetrics? Hmm, uh, like the, the science itself or whatever? Obstet- obstetrics? Maybe obstetrics?
1: Sure. Yeah, I don't really one know. One of those.
0: And gynecology. Okay. In an LA Times article, he was described as like tall and they used the word garrulous, which I recognized reading it but didn't remember what it meant. So he was like a talkative, charismatic kind of person.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And he was focused on preventative care for women, again, in obstetrics and gynecology. Ooh, that sounds good. You did it. I think that was the right one. Yeah. <laughs> In 1989, when he uh, Tyndall was 42, he got a job at the University of Southern California as mm. a physician in the Student Health Center. And this is one of the reasons I picked this story was because I went to USC, and so I was like, "Ooh, a, a connection to an institution that I went to."
1: Mm. What campus
0: was was he on? Did it say? Um, so he over the course of his career, he worked on both campuses, like the Health Science Campus and the Main Campus. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, for most of his years, like the majority of the time that he worked at USC, he was the only full-time gynecologist. Like there were other part-timers and like physician's assistants and stuff, but he was like the only main full-time gynecologist. Okay. So Tyndall reportedly told people when he got this job at USC that he had taken the job because he wanted to work with, quote, the bright, sophisticated women of, of the Stanford of the South.
1: Hmm. So I guess
0: that's how he referred to USC as the Stanford of the South. I don't know if other people uh, feel that or say that. There's a lot of like USC culture that I don't know because as a graduate student, you're not really in the culture of the college in the same way that you are if you're like an undergrad with like parents who went there and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Like there's there's a culture of USC that graduate students like don't get the way everyone else does, so I don't know if anyone else calls it the Stanford of the South, but hey. There it is. So he also said, my mission will be to do everything I can to help Trojan women, again the Trojans is the mascot, avoid the many preventable catastrophes that I have seen, and he declared that during his job interview, according to a written account that later was published by the new york times okay. and he said i will do so for so long as i am mentally and physically able hopefully well into my 80s hmm. he also had a vanity license plate that said "Coed doc oh
1: god anybody with mm-hmm. a vanity license plate and i'm sorry everybody out there i <laughs> i have we have to talk we gotta talk about it <laughs> i
0: what bothers me is the ones i can't figure out when i'm driving around them oh my god isn't it the worst yeah So, George Tyndall worked at USC for close to 30 years and treated tens of thousands of women students, many of whom were seeing a gynecologist for the first time. So, as early as the 1990s, which, again, was, what, uh, one year Mm -hmm. after he started working there, coworkers began lodging complaints against Tyndall. Here we go. Mm Mm-hmm. Many of the complaints were from women, nurse, or medical assistants. Um, apparent, again, I've never gone to a gynecologist, so uh, apparently it's somewhat common in gynecological visits for a woman to accompany another woman, like as a chaperone, during exams with men doctors. Mm-hmm. So there, that was something that was a common practice at USC, at least. And the women chaperones became alarmed at the frequency with which Tyndall was photographing students' genitalia. Mm. One witness stated that she had seen Tyndall photograph between 50 and 100 women patients' genitals. That's one chaperone oh. who reported between 50 and 100. My God. One of the clinic nurses, a woman named... Ber- Ooh, this is a last name that's going to be challenging for me. Bernadette Kosterlitsky. Oh, I think wow. I did that better than I expected to. Um, She worked at USC for more than 20 years and stated that she had reported the photographing incidents to the executive director of the, uh, I guess, medical center, whose name was Dr. Lawrence Neinstein. And at that point, Dr. Neinstein ordered the removal of Tyndall's camera. But that was all that happened. Hmm. According to Tyndall... He only photographed students' genitals with their consent and awareness, and to primarily allay any fears that they might have about genital warts. So his defense oh, was, they were on. concerned about genital warts and wanted, to, wanted me to take photographs to show them, which seems wildly implausible to me.
1: Uh, yeah, what was he using to take pictures? Was it, I, I, was this 90s? So what's, what is it, a digital camera? Maybe a Polaroid?
0: Probably oh, a Polaroid. God. It's... Well, 90s? I guess it was late
1: 90s when we got digital cameras. So I guess it might have been like a Polaroid. Because I was going to say, if it's the kind of camera where you're going to develop the film, you know, (laughs) we could just use a mirror. Exactly. (sighs) Exactly. Oh my god. So he claims that other photos were taken
0: in the event that, like, his other reason for photographing all these women's genitals was in case a future patient accused him of missing a cancer diagnosis. So he said he was taking these pictures to demonstrate in the case that he was ever essentially sued for um, malpractice for not spotting a cancer diagnosis. It was like his evidence to show like nobody else would spot a cancer diagnosis in this photo kind of thing. Yeah. In the early, in the early 2000, three separate women patients lodged complaints against Tyndall. These letters were read aloud during meetings of the Clinic Oversight Committee, which is like a a body that oversees all of the medical practice at the institution. Mm -hmm. And after the third complaint that they received, an anonymous member of the staff complained directly, again, to Executive Director Neinstein, saying that it was alarming to see so many complaints in such a short period of time against a doctor and told Neinstein something needs to be done. Uh, Yeah. Again, this is 11 years after he's been working there and 10 years since the first complaint started rolling in. Tyndall reportedly in later interviews would say that he was never made aware of these complaints and that any any action that Einstein took as a result of these complaints is unknown to him. And Einstein is now deceased, so USC would later say that Einstein kind of was like this independent person who would handle complaints independently and didn't really keep records of things. So they say, like, we don't have any record of any investigations against Tyndall, um, including any letters that were read at this committee, um, which to me is
1: such bullshit. I was going to say, number one, I don't believe that at all. No. Number two, if that was the case and that was the way he worked and everybody knew it, uh, he should not be in that position. No, exactly. Um, also, this is now
0: in the early two thousands. Email and the internet was like booming in the early nineties. So as early as these complaints started coming in, like there should have been email documentation that they could have pulled up in some way. Oh, but, for sure. Um USC did state that when they reviewed Einstein's files, they found records of eight complaints lodged against Tyndall between two thousand and two thousand fourteen. and 2014. So they there was record of at least eight complaints. Oh, only eight? Only eight. A number of these included complaints that Tyndall used racially offensive language, particularly against Black and Latinx patients. (sighs) Um, And if you want to know the awful things he said, you can go on Wikipedia because all of them are listed there. Yeah. In the following years, Tyndall was accused of inappropriate behavior with women staff members, including um, uh, chaperones reporting that he touched touched patients inappropriately during pelvic exams, and while he was examining them, would make sexual remarks about their bodies. Oh
1: my god.
0: Which is very much, the minute the perfume conversation started happening in the episode, I was like, this is exactly
1: that moment. Yeah, and to say that, oh, I wasn't aware of any complaints. I'm right. sure the complaints happened in the room. Right. So
0: in 2013, USC opened a new medical center. And within a few months of it opening, <laughs> chaperones again began reporting inappropriate behavior by Tyndall. And a lot of this information, by the way, is, in, is from a fabulous uh, LA Times kind of expose on Tyndall. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of the quotes that I'm going to read are from that article. So one of the quotes said, chaperones were concerned about what Tyndall described as a full body scan for unusual moles. Mm. They said Tyndall frequently had women lie naked on the exam table while he slowly inspected every part of their body down to the area between their buttocks. While he worked, he made comments that the nursing staff found unseemly. He described patient skin as flawless, Creamy or beautiful, according to multiple people who witnessed the exams or were told about them. They said he remarked on students, quote, perky breasts.
1: Oh my God.
0: Yeah. He reportedly stated to one patient about her breasts, they just stand right up there, don't they? So Um, he's. What (sighs) is this? Uh, uh, Yeah. Is this like. What am I watching? Oh, what am I here watching? Honestly, shocking. That this went on for as long as it did. Oh, my God. So USC has a really large international student population. It's about 25% of the student body. Mm. And allegations against Tyndall are that he specifically targeted Chinese international students to capitalize on... Their lack of familiarity with, like, the U.S. medical system and potentially English skills that weren't fully proficient, which made it easier for him to victimize them. Yeah. And this was confirmed by multiple witnesses. Um, Here's another quote from the LA Times article. During consultations in his office, Tyndall tried to connect with these students. He ordered a map of China and encouraged women to point out their home province. He kept a bamboo plant, the traditional Chinese symbol of longevity and vitality, on a shelf above his desk, and he reported how some patients liked to take pictures of it. He sometimes showed students a photo of his Filipino wife and shared details of their relationships, according to former patients. So not only is this man a sexual assault monster, he's also this, he's, like, fetishizing Asian women in a way, which makes me very, very uncomfortable. Yeah. So, Tyndall would also reportedly insert his finger into patients at the beginning of an exam, saying to his patient, like, I'm checking to see if the speculum will fit appropriately, because I just want to confirm that. Um, Essentially, like, he would say... I wouldn't want to hurt you inserting speculum if I don't think it's going to fit. So then he would say, I think it's going to fit. Let's put two fingers in. And complainant stated that he did this and made nearly identical statements to hundreds of patients, including things like, my, what a tight muscle you have. Oh, you must be a runner.
1: My God.
0: I just want to he w- scream. Yeah. He would also engage in sexual conversation while his fingers were inside of patients, saying things like, Don't worry, your hymen is still intact. Your boyfriend's going to love it. Whew. Okay. So the complaints about Tyndall would make their way up to Neinstein again, who reportedly told one of the complainants that, Oh, I've talked to Tyndall about his behavior in the past.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. Well, great.
0: But he's still doing it. So clearly that didn't have an impact. Wow. All right. And Neinstein, you're also D bag. Yeah. So Tyndall, in he, when this all kind of like broke, he talked to the LA Times a couple of times before he like stopped responding to them, but he claimed that these reports were him trying to identify a uh, condition called vaginismus, vaginismus, uh, can, which essentially is a condition that can make pelvic exams painful. Um, So that was supposedly why he wasn't just beginning with a speculum. But here's a quote from the LA Times article. Dr. Sanjita Mahajan, a national expert in pelvic pain, said she had never heard of a gynecologist moving his fingers in and out of a patient to gauge whether a speculum would fit and called the practice very odd and creepy. (laughs) Mahajan, the chief of female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery at University Hospital's Cleveland Medical Center, said inserting fingers before the speculum was Quote, not a reliable way of identifying vaginismus. So, in addition to being very odd and creepy, many other medical experts were like, that's not even a way to check. (laughs) Uh, No kidding.
1: I don't have a medical degree. I had a a strong suspicion that that was uh, not by the books. (laughs) Right. Um, Many other experts,
0: including professors of gynecology at Harvard Medical, would say that this was not standard practice and this is not something a gynecologist should be routinely doing. So reports indicate that many students refused to be scheduled with Tyndall, stating that his exams were weird and they felt violated. One student who was from the Swana region stated that he was fixated on her virginity when they talked. And she said, quote, He offered me a little baggie of blood that I could pop on my wedding night so my husband would think that I was a virgin.
1: Wow. Uh, uh, uh,
0: yeah. There's just <laughs> no words at some point for oh. these things. Oh. <gasps> Tyndall also reportedly removed an intrauterine device from a patient and asked her if he could keep it. Um. And that happened multiple times. Ooh. At this point, Einstein apparently decided, like, okay, this is probably a little concerning. <laughs> um, and he notified the Office of Equity and Diversity at USC, who... Interviewed multiple employees and some patients, but supposedly Tyndall and the complainants were never informed that they were doing this investigation. And this investigation concluded that there was no violation of policy. How? Well, okay. So here's one thing I will say, which is working at a university, violating policy has to be like really, really crystal clear in order for the university to be able to like take any action on it. And so I I'm, I'm not saying that that's what happened in this instance but the sort of like burden of meeting policy violations is really high at a lot of institutions. Okay. So when Tyndall reportedly found out about this investigation, he began this weird campaign to solicit positive feedback from his patients. And so at the end of his examinations, he would hand students a letter with um, asking them to submit positive feedback, like email the medical clinic, tell them how happy you were with me, and told them, like, blind copy me on the messages, please.
1: No, thanks. I'll
0: pass. Nope. So in June of 2016... Staff in the medical center noticed an infestation of insects, and when they tracked down the source of the infestation, it was in Tyndall's office. Tyndall was on the vacation was on vacation at the time, and underneath his desk was a bag of rotting fruit that I get I guess he had just left there by mistake before he went on vacation. And that's what was causing the infestation. Oh, uh- But what concerned them was when they went under his desk to, like, remove the fruit, they also found a box full of photographs of women's genitalia labeled with identifying information as far back as 1991.
1: Just under his desk. This is 2016.
0: Under his desk. By the rotten fruit. A senior nurse named Cindy Gilbert was very concerned about Tyndall's conduct and his continued practice and sexual abuse of students, and so she reported him to the Campus Rape Crisis Center. This ultimately resulted in his suspension and an internal investigation of his conduct. The investigation determined that Tyndall's behavior during pelvic exams, quote, exhibited unprofessional and inappropriate behavior and was, quote, outside the scope of current medical practice. You don't say. You don't say. During the investigation, Tyndall continued to defend his medical practices while a lot of students and staff began to criticize him. One going so far as to say that if he was allowed to return to campus, she would go to the police. Good. Uh, Which, uh, good. So USC, looking to protect its reputation and prevent lawsuits, allowed, basically offered Tyndall a deal. And they were like, okay, listen, if you retire right now, not what you know we won't make anything of this we won't have to fire you and they gave him an undisclosed sum of money to just like quietly retire Hmm. so when he like was terminated slash retired in june of 2017 none of his patients or fellow staff were notified until like a few weeks later when they got an email just saying like tyndall will not be returning to usc but like gave no reason as to why Hmm. USC also failed to report their findings to the conduct of the medical board of California which is responsible for protecting people from misconduct and malpractice by physicians but USC they're a private school and so they were able to claim like we were not legally obligated to report because that that law doesn't govern us as a private institution I mean which again, so I think much
1: is shit so much bullshit it's it's so much yeah. to protect this this guy's reputation what if he can't get another job like oh my god
0: so reporters at the la times had gotten wind of these allegations in like 2015 2016 they started to get reports of this gynecologist who was potentially abusing clients and so the la times started this investigation into george tyndall and when USC was contacted by the LA Times. USC had told them that thing, like, we were not under any legal obligation to report him to the medical board, and the complaints that we've received are just a human resources matter. (laughs) Later, in a later interview, USC would say, in hindsight, we should have reported him.
1: Oh, you know,
0: oops. Oops. Oopsie. So... In 2018, this two years after U- uh, LA Times began this investigation, USC did file a belated report to the medical board in, in 2018 in March, and this was reportedly after Tyndall had attempted to be reinstated into his position. He was like, oh no, I want to come work here again, and so that's when they reported him to the medical board.
1: A very wise woman once said, I know it's a little too late, too late. <laughs> Then I don't that know that song. was Jojo.
0: <laughs> Jojo Siwa? No. Uh, Jojo. <laughs> oh, Jojo.
1: Like, get out right now,
0: Jojo. <laughs> Got it. Okay. In advance of the LA Times article, President Nikias of USC, who was president when I was there. I was there for all of these years. Mm-hmm. Well, not all of them, but Many. it spanned the entire duration of my time at USC. Mm-hmm. Um, President Nikki has sent out a letter to the entire campus describing Tyndall's misconduct as, quote, a profound breach of trust. Mm -hmm. And, quote, several of the complaints were concerning enough that it is not clear today why the former health center director permitted Tyndall to remain in his position. So they fully pinned responsibility for this on the dead guy.
1: Of course. Of course they did.
0: It went on to say, um, on behalf of the university, I sincerely apologize to any student who may have visited the student health center and did not receive the respectful care each individual deserves. Um,
1: I think that is, uh, that's great. Um, I think that is really downplaying what happens. Oh yeah. To like the extreme. And I get why, like
0: as somebody who writes statements for the university periodically, like there, you- they do have to be very careful with the language that they use so that they don't imply fault and like get sued. But still that seems like so awful to downplay this as like not receiving respectful care.
1: Yeah. Oh, you know, just it's it's like going to a doctor's office and getting a bad feeling. (laughs) Yeah, exactly.
0: Tyndall, who is now 71 years old at this time, spoke with the LA times defending himself. And he said he never did anything but provide thorough medical care and was quoted as saying, I'm here to protect the health of Trojan women. Oh my God. So the Times article, this huge expose, came out on May 16th of 2018, and it detailed a long history of allegations of sexual abuse by Tyndall during his 30 years with USC, including interviews with over 20 current and former USC employees who witnessed his misconduct. Mm. Most uh, agreed to speak with the LA Times under the agreement that their identities would remain confidential, Mm -hmm. um, in part due to patient confidentiality laws and also like risk to their reputation and for future careers. And the report that they reviewed had over 100 pages of documentation of Tyndall's alleged misconduct. Amidst all of this, Cindy Gilbert, the nurse who had initially reported him to the rape crisis center that resulted in his retirement slash termination, said that she had been offered a promotion prior to filing this report and had even been, like, issued business cards with her new job title. However, after her report to the Rape Crisis Center and all of this emerged, mm-hmm. her promotion was rescinded, and the clinic managers reportedly stopped talking to her to retaliate against her for filing the report.
1: I was going to say she probably fired or something, of course. She,
0: res- she resigned in 2017.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: In response to—in one response to the allegations— Tyndall uh, this is so foul. Tyndall apparently joked that the chaperones had reported him because they themselves could not reach orgasm and were jealous of younger uh, patients with tighter pelvic muscles.
1: Just, oh my god. Disgusting Which, if that monster yeah, trash
0: box. Yeah. So <laughs> President Nikias resigned in 2018 after the entire USC community was like, You're garbage. Get the fuck out. How dare you mishandle this so badly? Mm-hmm. And all of the so He resigned, or President Nikias resigned in part because of this scandal with Tyndall. But simultaneously, another scandal was happening at USC involving the dean of the School of Medicine, whose name was Carmen Pugliafito.
1: Okay.
0: And I just need to tell you what was happening because it is so wild. Oh my god. So... Puglia Fido was photographed and videotaped on multiple occasions, smoking meth and hiring sex workers at hotels, at his apartment, and in his office on campus. Oh, okay. Doesn't stop there. He was in a hotel with a sex worker who then overdosed on drugs and died. And three weeks later, he resigned from USC. Um, And and USC provided the women's family a settlement of $1.5 million to prevent a lawsuit against the institution. As part of the agreement, the family members were required to turn over all video and photographic evidence Mm -hmm. showing Pugliafito's illegal drug use so that the university could destroy them. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So there were many lawsuits filed in all of this.
1: So not not on like the Forbes list of greatest places to work. That
0: year, probably. <laughs> USC, yeah, yeah, probably not. <laughs> so, in one of the larger civil lawsuits against USC, 710 women reported that they had been assaulted by
1: Tyndall. I'm like disgusted, but based on just what you've said so far, I'm not surprised.
0: Well, right, because he saw thousands right. of patients. And he was the
1: only, basically, the only, only person on time. campus. So,
0: yep, they didn't have a lot of options. So, These 710 women, as part of like a class action lawsuit kind of thing, Mm -hmm. they sued the university and eventually received a settlement of $852 million from the university. Mm -hmm. Between that settlement and another lawsuit that I think was in federal court, the university had to pay over $1.1 billion Ah. to the victims of George
1: Tyndall, Mm. or to the
0: survivors of George Tyndall, I should say.
1: I mean, good? Um, Good. And I also feel like that is probably, I mean, that's a lot, but universities, they have it. Oh,
0: and USC, oh my god, the amount of money is just obscene. Yeah. So this was, and still is, the largest sexual misconduct settlement in history. Wow. Attorney John Manley, who is on the team of lawyers representing the survivors, stated, quote, This historic settlement came about through the bravery of hundreds of women and girls. Oh, and by the way, some of the women were 17, so he was also assaulting minors. Mm. Bravery of hundreds of women and girls who had the courage to stand up and refuse to be silenced. We appreciate the diligent efforts of the survivors' attorneys who worked with us to obtain this measure of justice and healing. The enormous, size, <clears throat> the enormous size of this settlement speaks to the immense harm done to our clients and the culpability of USC. I want to be clear, USC and senior administrators at USC in the health center and otherwise knew. The press materials that USC point put out in 2018 that this was somehow a mystery to them were a damn lie, and we proved that. Tyndall has been charged with 29 felony counts by Los, A- Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office. He pled not guilty to all of them. If he is convicted, he faces up to 64 years in prison. This is an ongoing suit. Wow. Um, and he's currently 74 years old, so if he's convicted of these things, he will be dying in prison. But mm-hmm. that is the story of George Tyndall and the huge scandal at USC. Whew.
1: Holy crap. Wow. Right? Isn't that horrifying? It's it's horrifying. I mean any <laughs> any stories of sexual assault are horrifying. Yes. But this is just a whole this has so many layers to it. Like yes. Sexual assault against women terrible. Then yes. you're put it's being administered for lack of a better term to them by a healthcare professional that they're Correct. going to to uh to trust receive care. and receive care yeah. from. And he's preying upon them when they're in their absolute most vulnerable moments. Yep, every single one of them. And he's yep. depend and he knows he's doing it. He knows oh, he's yeah. doing it. For that reason he knows when he's doing it. And he's mm-hmm. doing it in surreptitious ways. And even like half of the things he does are like surreptitious and the other half are just blatant and outright and yep. arrogant and it's like he's depending upon the the fear of the stigma that they will receive if they speak out about it. Oh, absolutely. He's depending upon them not to know better, which maybe some of them have. This is the first time they're seeing a gynecologist or an OB-GYN. Absolutely. So he's depending yep. on them thinking maybe I'm overreacting. Maybe this is maybe this wasn't all that. And 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 furthermore, for those out there who did go to receive care from him and were assaulted instead. I mm-hmm. bet there were there was plenty of them that thought I'm overreacting. And the fact that I feel dirty about this makes me dirty makes oh, me I mean, wrong.
0: There's totally, there's so many psychological impacts to this as well. Like I'm sure there were many women who received her or, you know, didn't receive care and were assaulted by Tyndall and, Either like thought that this is what gynecology is, and I never want to go right. back, or we so traumatized by the experience that they're like, I I don't trust doctors. I'm scared to go. I'm gonna put off making appointments. Like there are a lot of oh a lot God. a lot of impacts
1: to this. And then for those that are brave enough to go to see another another professional, and then maybe have have fear or have a reaction mm-hmm. when when they're about to receive care, and then have to be judged for that. Like there's something wrong with. Them. I mean, it's just. Right. Oh my God, it's heartbreaking. It's terrible. I mean, I'm pleased that he is possibly going to face some sort of repercussion. Yeah, yeah, but too little, too late. And I'm yeah. glad that there's such a big payout. But I mean, that doesn't. I'm, I'm. I hope that it doesn't take anything away. But I hope that it helps some of these women achieve things that they wouldn't otherwise be able to achieve without the without the money but it doesn't take oh, yeah. away from what happened, you know.
0: No. Yeah. And that's like here's my hope is that he's found guilty and I hope he he had to have made a really good salary oh, as like yeah. the chief gynecologist at USC for 30 years. This man must have been making probably 2 or 300,000 if not more mm-hmm. every year for 30 years. And I feel like all of his assets and all of his belongings should be seized and redistributed to survivors of sexual assault and like programs to support survivors like none of that should be allowed to go to anyone
1: else 100% 100% (laughs) oh man
0: so that is that's (gasps) the related true crime
1: I think it's it's very related
0: yeah (laughs) I know I was I did my research first and then I watched the episode and I was like oh I I like really (laughs) hit the nail on the head with this case yeah Eey. How so. um, How would you rate the episode? <laughs> F minus, one of the worst we've seen. Uh. <laughs>
1: and I think yeah. I said that last time too, didn't I? You might. There was a D and F. The last episode I think we watched, we I don't remember for which thing, but we both gave it a D and an F. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. For watchability, I'm going to give it an F because it was terrible yeah. to watch. I, uh, there were good performances in it. by Doctor Olivet, the actress that plays her did a wonderful job but playing a very nuanced role in a very uncomfortably written episode. Yes, but yeah, and I think we saw the worst of all of our characters besides, you know, Stone and Robinette maybe. Um Yeah. For The True <laughs> Crime, I'm very conflicted with how I think it handled the situation. Um Yeah, it because, was really complicated. Yeah, cuz on one hand, it was terrible because like you said it was gratuitous to hear that audio. Um, twice twice and and you know kind of three times um, and, and they they
0: stayed filming dr olivet's sex multiple sexual assaults in this episode f- for a good period of time yeah. like we were watching her be sexually
1: assaulted on camera for extended minutes yeah which i can't even imagine what that would have been like for her but yeah on the other hand even though everyone was terrible about it with her Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It felt realistic, unfortunately. Yeah, and it I, felt like yeah. That's probably the experience many women have when they come forward. Yeah, and yeah. and worse. So on that, but I don't think that was on purpose. I don't think that was the intent. Maybe it was a little bit of the intention, but I don't yeah. think it was like the full intention. So I don't know. Yeah, I think I'm gonna give
0: it a d minus for how it dealt with the episode or dealt with the things because there were like moments where they talked about assault in a respectful and informative way yeah but that was like m- mere moments
1: <laughs> amid a sea of garbage yeah i'm gonna give it a i'm gonna give it a d plus i'll give oh, it a great. little bit of a i think the last scene with dr olivet and her her therapist helped helped a little mm. bit redeem it a little bit mm-hmm. yeah
0: you're i feel like a, i'm often the harsher judge than you yeah but this was a <laughs> i get lower scores you know
1: <laughs> um i do have a, a poorly placed platitude to try to lighten in the moment okay great all right so this is I, i'll always do this in a stone voice <laughs> <laughs> we go to doctors to get treated for illnesses and broken bones too often the treatment ends up breaking our spirits instead
0: Ooh, that would have been a much better
1: closing line. <laughs> yeah, right? Just to try to <laughs> tie it up. N, do you know what my love yes. language is? I, I, tell me. Podcast reviews and subscriptions. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so if you'd like to show us the little love, subscribe to our show and please write us a review.
0: Yes, the second best thing you can do is if you like our podcast and you think we should uh, be successful and everybody should be listening to us, the very best thing you can do to help us is to rate and review our podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this on, or just do it on every platform if you
1: have a minute. Exactly. And we love connecting with our listeners, so feel free to send us an email at rippedheadlinespod.com and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Ripped Headlines. And while you're online, head on over to RippedHeadlinesPod.com,
0: where you will find the link to our Patreon and our merch store.
1: Also, a percentage of our Patreon proceeds get donated to the Equal Justice Initiative. So by supporting us, you are also supporting positive change in the world. Thank you for listening to Ripped from the Headlines, where you get the facts and some fiction. We will see you next week. And until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye. Bye.